chapter 6. Galatians 6 is where we'll be centering uh, our study in this time of our worship. Galatians chapter 6. Good to see you this morning. We have some visitors with us. We want you to know that we're glad that you're here. Welcome. We're glad that you're among us, and we hope that the things we're going to study and think about will benefit you, but we appreciate you making the effort and taking the time to be here. Uh, As has been mentioned, uh, I was gone last week for a meeting. I'm happy, happy to be home. I did go back to the congregation where I preached my very first sermon, and it was, I did the math, it was 21 years ago, which is crazy, and uh, that sermon was seven minutes long, which I think is hilarious, and uh, they all were so happy when I preached for seven minutes that they were, said it was one of the best sermons they had ever heard. Uh, they did not say that this week. Um, of course, the sermons were not seven minutes long this week, uh, but uh, we had a good meeting. I saw uh, Zach and MK. And uh, they're working there with that congregation, Mahia, Texas, and uh, they're doing well. Uh, they have a little baby. The baby does not have a beard, at least not yet. I think that comes maybe in six months, something like that. But uh, it was sure good to see them, and, uh, but I'm glad to be home. I do want you to know uh, this is kind of a back-and-forth kind of month for me. So next week I'm, I'm holding a meeting in Camden. We've got the flyer up on the back. Uh, then I'm back for a week, and then I'm holding another meeting in Pine Bluff, and then I'm done, at least for the year. So uh, anyway, I'll be in and out, but I appreciate you uh, thinking about me, and I appreciate those who are filling in in my absence. Galatians 6 and verse 7 is where I want to read. Galatians 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Need to get my clicker. So, psychologists and those who study trauma have identified a condition that they call secondary traumatic stress, or more commonly they call it Compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue is when we care so much and so often for people that we get tired. We get worn out. We wear out our emotional circuits. So it was originally diagnosed a lot among aid workers, you know, people like hospital workers, people who work in tragedies, people who work with disaster victims. And it makes sense. If your job is to work with people who are always suffering, you kind of get tired of dealing with people who are suffering, and you lose the capacity over time to care to the same degree that you would uh, had you not had all of those experiences. But now, even though that was kind of when that was originally uh, observed and diagnosed, now compassion fatigue is very widely seen because in our era, we live in an era of decontextualized suffering. What that means is we see lots of suffering, especially through video and now online through social media. We see a lot of suffering with people we don't know, in situations where we don't live, suffering that in many cases we can't do anything about. And so we see the suffering, and over time, seeing so much suffering kind of wears out our circuits because we kind of reach a point where we say, well, how can I care about so many things so often at so many times? So compassion fatigue has become a much more general and more concerning problem. One doctor said this, He said, we are inundated with graphic images of the unimaginable suffering of millions. We can fathom the suffering of a few, but a million becomes a statistic that numbs us. 
So when people suffer compassion fatigue, they begin to, to feel as if they have suffered a trauma. So I, I care so much and so often that it feels like I have suffered. And so they begin to feel burdened and exhausted. They isolate themselves from others. They are increasingly feeling of hopeless, hopelessness and powerlessness. They begin to complain about life. In other words, we would just say it this way. They get worn out. And I believe that compassion fatigue, that idea, is a great way to describe what Paul is talking about here in verse 9. Where he says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It acknowledges the fact that doing good can wear us out. And he says, be careful about being weary in your well-doing. So if compassion fatigue is a problem for people who work with the needy and suffering, then compassion fatigue is going to be a problem for Christians because that's part of what we do. We serve people. We care for people. We reach out to people. And so we're going to have times where that wears us out. And Paul warns us, be careful. Christians are at risk for compassion fatigue. And I believe that you know just as well as I do what that feels like and you have experienced it yourself. Have you ever had this happen? Have you spent your time showing kindness to somebody or trying to invest in somebody or talking to somebody about Jesus or trying to help somebody get on their feet financially or just doing for other people or helping someone through an addiction or a hard time? And it just wore you out. Especially those ongoing tight needs where people can just take and take and take. Or maybe you get to the end of it and you feel like, man, I haven't made any difference whatsoever. And you just get burned out. Sometimes our efforts go unnoticed or unappreciated. Sometimes our efforts are repaid with anger and hurt and bitterness from the people we're trying to help. Sometimes, excuse me, sometimes people just walk away from the Lord. And they walk away from us. And that hurts. And so we get worn out. It disappoints you on a level that is beyond words. I hope you realize I'm not just speaking in a clinical way here. I'm speaking about things I've experienced too. It wears you out. And it makes it hard to try again, doesn't it? The next time somebody asks you for money and you got burnt the last five times, it's awfully hard to say, well, here you go. It's awfully hard when you've worked and worked with somebody through an addiction and it did no good that you could tell to look at the next person and say, you know what, this time maybe it'll work. It's awfully hard to share the gospel with the same openness when the last person you shared it with insulted you. It's just hard to bounce back from the disappointments that come. That's compassion fatigue. So what I want to do for a few minutes this morning is talk about how we can battle that. And some thoughts here that Paul is going to use to help us to think through how we can learn to care and give again. The first thing I want us to say here is we need to remember that disappointments are inevitable. Now, when Paul talks about doing good in this context, you see that in verse 9, do not grow weary in doing good. That doing good is things that have to do with other people. So look with me. We're just going to break down the context a little bit. Look back in verse 1. In verse 1 he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So spiritual people are people who go after their brother when he's caught in sin, and they do their best to restore him, to bring him back to healthy position, and they do it with kindness and gentleness and humility. So that's a hard calling, the calling to say when somebody's in sin, I'm going to take the responsibility to go to them. 
This is not a passage that's strictly for elders. This is not a passage that's strictly for preachers. He says, you who are spiritual. This is for all Christians who are pursuing the things of the Spirit that were addressed at the end of chapter 5. So he says, you go restore him. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we bear others' burdens. We help them when they are struggling with sin. We help them when they are overwhelmed by life. When we are overburdened, someone comes along and, and lifts the burden so that we can go on. He says, you bear each other's burdens. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he has something when he has nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. I think the, the key thought here is that we ought not think we're too good to do that. You know, that I'm so good that I don't need to go help other people with their burdens. He says, don't think you're something when you're nothing, and don't think that you can piggyback off other people's good deeds and other people's love and care. He says each one of us is going to bear our own load, and that way we're going to stand before God for what we have done, not what somebody else has done. So he says you need to be caring for others, and you need to be showing that concern with real action. In verse 6 he says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So this is the idea simply that we share with teachers and do good to them. Somebody's sharing with us and giving us, we give back to them. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So in the course of our lives, Paul says, we're either sowing to the flesh or to the Spirit. He talked about that in chapter 5. And so the idea is our lives are going in a certain direction and our choices are always taking us in a certain direction as if someone is in charge. Is it the Spirit who is in charge? That is the Holy Spirit through his revelation, through what we've learned in chapter 5. Or is that the flesh, what we want? Which one are we pursuing? And each day those deposits are made, or if you want to use the image of the passage, we're sowing seed in one place or the other. And we are going to reap something from what we have sown. We're either going to reap eternal life or we're going to reap corruption. So verse 9 let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So the, the whole point is keep sowing and keep sowing to the Spirit and keep doing good for other people because that's going to bear a fruit if, if we don't give up. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So let's keep doing good, especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's have this perspective without wearing out. Let's not quit. Doing good, restoring brothers, doing good, bearing burdens, doing good, sharing, doing what the situation requires. So implied then in verse 9 that we are, there's the possibility of growing weary in well-doing is the idea of disappointment. That we're going to reach a point where our good is not always rewarded. And we need to understand that those disappointments are a part of what we do when we serve Jesus. In fact, it, it's helpful for me to just think back through. So just think back through with me the fact that Jesus had disappointments. Jesus. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The sighing deeply in the spirit is what I'm pointing out. I mean, how frustrating would it be to work with people and to teach and to do all these miracles and and. Every day you wake up and you go out and teach and you throw pearls of wisdom before the people and they turn and trample them and try to come get you. How frustrating must it be to know these people know the book and yet they reject 
you. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I I don't know. I, I know that I'm interpreting a little here, but I hear frustration in Jesus' tone. I mean, how long do I have to put up with this? Jesus had his disappointments. And then with the disciples themselves, you remember when they, bring, they forget to bring bread and they think Jesus is getting on to them about the bread. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? Isn't it amazing that Jesus had the patience he did with these men? I think, I think any of us would have thrown up our hands in frustration long before even just saying something mild like this. But I think in this you can hear Jesus' tone of disappointment. Not everyone Jesus taught believed. Not everyone Jesus helped accepted his help. Some people were fakers. One of them walked with him for three years and then betrayed him. The disciples forsook him and fled. Jesus had disappointments. So if Jesus had disappointments, we're going to have disappointments as we try to serve people and help them as we try to serve the Lord. And Paul had his share of disappointments. As much as Paul worked to preach and convert people, to establish churches, one of the constant concerns you see in Paul's writing is that his work is going to be in vain. That word, in vain. As if everything can be washed away because of people and their foolish choices. And that's exactly how Paul felt. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Do you hear it? Yeah, I'm frustrated with you, and I want you to do right, but I'm also kind of frustrated for me. Because what would it mean if you walk away from the Lord? It means everything I've done, all the work, all the investment is for nothing. He says this to the Thessalonians, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He's talking about the persecution that accompanied when he was first there planting the church in Thessalonica. And he says, I'm so worried. I was so concerned that somehow you were going to fall away from the Lord and all our work would be for nothing. Can you imagine the anxiety and the weakness that would accompany the fact that this is your life's work, the very work of the Lord, and it hinges on people who you can't control? Isn't that amazing? That's how Paul felt. When Paul had seen people walk away, He had seen people accept false teaching. He had seen them turn against him. And he says, now I live with a constant anxiety. This is 2 Corinthians 11. My constant anxiety for all the churches. Because Paul knew disappointments were a part of the work. In fact, you read 2 Timothy. Just read it real quick. You can see it all over the place. He says, all those in Asia have turned away from me. Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm. Demas has forsaken me. No one stood with me at my first defense. Paul's life was full of disappointments. If we expect that we will never have any disappointment, everybody's going to always respond with gratitude to our efforts. Everybody, the gospel is always going to be fully accepted when we talk about it. Or that when we help someone, it's going to transform their lives every time. Then we are mistaken. As if we are better than Jesus or Paul, this is just a part of it. Disappointments are going to happen. So... I find it helpful to remember this is part of our service. Part of our service is to try and try and try and be disappointed again and again and again. 
That was the case for Jesus. That was the case for Paul. Nothing had gone wrong. Nothing had changed. It wasn't that God's plan didn't work. It's just that's part of service to God and others. Second, don't judge the future by the past. One of the problems about compassion fatigue is that we begin to see the future pessimistically because all we're thinking about are the disappointments of the past. I want to show you this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians 3, we'll come back to Galatians 6, so leave your marker there. But 2 Thessalonians 3 talks about this. The assumption is that we are going to be hurt again the way we were hurt in the past, disappointed again. So I want you to notice, first we're going to read a little bit of the context, and then I want you to notice the same phrase we've been studying about don't grow weary in well-doing. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10, Paul writes, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So he says the same thing. Don't get weary in doing good, but it's in an entirely different context. This is not in the context of Galatians where he's talking about different things they're doing to help others. This is in the context of people that the Thessalonians have been supporting even though they're not working. And he tells them, you quit supporting him. I believe that's what verse 10 means. If anyone doesn't work, don't let him eat. Don't feed him. Don't support that when he's refusing to, do, to take care of his own business. But right there in the middle of that text, he says, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't let these people with their corrupt attitudes, don't let these people diminish your desire to do good in the future. So you're going through this. He says, hey, don't get weary just because sometimes there are knuckleheads, just because sometimes there are people who try to take advantage of your goodness, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't let these people wear you out. Don't get tired just because some people are not what they should be. And don't assume that the next time someone needs something from you, it will be like this time. Don't judge the future by the past. Now, this is hard. This is hard because we learn quickly that when you get burned doing something, you quit doing it. In fact, we would say that's wisdom, right? The essence of wisdom is to say, well, if I do this, this happens, so I'm not going to do this anymore. But we can't be that way in terms of caring for other people. As if when we get burned, everyone will do what that last person did. Every person is unique. And every person deserves from us fair treatment on their own terms. As I was writing this, I was thinking about when Sarah and I had uh, baby name discussions. I know some of you guys are going through that. When you discuss baby names, we would have this kind of discussion, and I probably vetoed way more than she did. I think she's nodding at that. Um, but what would happen is we would say a name. She would usually say the name, and I would say, nope, no, I know a guy. Uh, I, and, and usually, I mean, I don't have like a list of all the bad people. It's just, it's just oh, no, he was kind of annoying. And I, I don't want to think about that every time I say my son's name. So no. And you know what? That's what we do in that kind of situation. It's as if, well, everybody who's ever had that name who we had any kind of unpleasant thought about, well, that would happen again if we named our baby that. 
And that's kind of the way we get with people. You know, anything that, that comes close to any experience we've had that was negative, it's so burned into our minds that we say, you know what, the next time that happens, you know, there was this one time I gave some money to somebody and they did this. In fact, I had a time when I was in college, I'll just speak for myself, I had a time in college where I was told I was going to burn in hell by a guy who had already given money to. And so, you know, that, that kind of thing, oof. I don't think that I'm going to be that ready to give money the next time. And, you know, it's something you have, to, you have to grow. You have to learn. But you can't judge the future by the past. In fact, Scripture teaches us it's dangerous to even judge the same person by their past and our interactions with them in their past. You remember John Mark, who Paul has trouble with on the first journey, and later on he's going to say, he's useful to me for ministry. Paul had to grow in his acceptance of John Mark, giving him another chance, thinking through that and not judging his future by his past. So here's the thing. Not all people are the same. People can grow. But don't grow weary in well-doing by assuming every bad thing that has happened in your past is going to happen again or that all people deserve to suffer because of what you've suffered in your efforts in the past. Third thing I would say is see interactions as opportunities and not burdens. Let's go back to Galatians 6. Galatians 6. See them as opportunities and not burdens. Galatians 6 and verse 9. It says, and Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So he says, Don't grow weary in doing good. Instead, you do good to all but especially those who are of the household of faith. But my version in verse 10 says, so then as we have opportunity. The word opportunity here means time, as we have the time to do it. And it says that those chances that we have to serve other people should be taken in a positive way. You have the chance, you have the time, you have the opportunity to do this. Compassion fatigue leads us to see things as a burden. When people need something, we say, oh, again? We begin to say what I have to do. Oh, I've got to go do this for someone. And I believe our language betrays us in that. We don't see it as an opportunity. We don't see it as a chance to serve. Instead, we see it as something we feel forced to do. It's an obligation. Now, certainly, I should do good. But opportunity sees it positively as something I want to do. And in that, there can be a world of difference. The idea of an opportunity also matters because we are just inundated with needs. I mean, just take a minute. If you're on Facebook, scroll your Facebook feed. You'll see needs. Turn on your TV. You'll see needs. Watch the news. You'll see needs. Charity runs. I, I like to run. I see them all the time. Everybody has a charity run for some charity and some cause that needs help and it deserves support. Orphan care, the Red Cross, there are wars in other places. The billboards talk about hunger in America. And at some point, don't you get the feeling it's just too much? There are just too many causes. It's just one me. I only have the money I have. I only have the time I have. I only have the heart I have. There's just too much need in the world for me to be able to solve it all. But it's refreshing to remember 
that God only expects us to do what we have opportunity to do. And to be able to see, here is an opportunity where I can do something. I can change something. I can contribute to something. That's to take something that can be overwhelming and turn it positive. I also want to say this. Sometimes that bombardment of needs can overwhelm us. And when Jesus becomes overwhelmed or disappointed, like, for example, when he learns of John the Baptist's murder, he withdraws from people and goes and prays. Sometimes the need follows him, like in that occasion, and he tends to them and takes care of them, and then he withdraws and prays. It may be that when we feel overwhelmed by the needs of the world, and we find ourselves beginning to care a little less, that we need to withdraw a little and connect with God in prayer, to turn off those inputs that keep heaping needs on us and say, instead, I'm going to take care of the needs that I have the opportunity to serve in right now. I will always be able to do more with my wife and my children and my local brothers and sisters than I will in some distant land or with some global problem. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially those who are of the household of faith. In fact, I found it interesting. As I thought through that, I also was doing some research, and that's actually what psychiatrists say in terms of advice. When you're suffering from compassion fatigue, they say, limit the amount of news you watch. Learn to be grateful for the good things in your life. In other words, back off from some of that and take care of what you can. And I believe that uh, dovetails well with what Scripture actually teaches. And the last thing I would say in battling compassion fatigue is work for the Lord and not just for people. In Galatians 6 and verse 7, look at it again. Galatians 6 and verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that, he will, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So you see the thread here of sowing and reaping. We don't sow to solve immediate problems. We don't sow for an immediate harvest. We sow and we wait. We sow in hope. We do good now for the harvest later. And that's different from what the world tells us. The world tells us, do good now to make a difference now. And you know what's hard about that? Very, very often... We do good now and we see no difference. We do good now, we don't see any difference in the people that we know. We don't see any difference in the causes we support. We don't see any difference. And so we get discouraged. Who wouldn't? If we're told, you've got to make a difference. Your life has to make a difference and we don't see the difference. We begin to think, well, maybe I'm just a failure. Maybe everything I've done is just pointless. But that's not the way God teaches us to view our lives. We don't just work to solve all the problems now. We work for the Lord and not just for people. So, when other people don't obey the gospel and don't get on their feet and don't heal financially, that does not mean it was a waste. In fact, I want you to look with me in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll turn here and close here. 1 Corinthians 15. We need to remember this perspective that there is more than just what we see in terms of the fruit of our actions. That we plant seeds and we will reap the harvest in eternity. Our work is never a waste 
when we work for the Lord. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, there are some who were teaching that there is no resurrection, or more specifically, that we don't have any hope of a future resurrection. And so here, Paul talks about, in 1 Corinthians 15, if that's the case, everything is worthless. Everything is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. You believed in vain. Those who have already died in Christ have truly died. There's no hope for them. But he closes in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15 and 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, because there is a resurrection, because we do have this hope, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because Jesus will raise us and will judge us and will reward us because Jesus created us for good works. You keep doing good. Your work is never in vain. It's never pointless. So when we begin to think that, we need to know that's a lie being told us by the world. That may be a lie that we want to believe because we want to make a difference and we want to have significance in this time. But the eyes of faith look beyond this. We sow now because we reap in eternity. So work for the Lord, not just for people. I know it's tempting when we're serving others and caring for others to always evaluate our work by what they say and do. But Paul says, no matter what happens with people, your work is never in vain in the Lord. Isn't it interesting that Paul, who always wrestled with, is my labor in vain? Are people going to walk away? Will my labor be in vain? Here he says, in the Lord, your labor is never in vain because Jesus will give us the fruit of the seeds that we're sowing. So, These are the thoughts I wanted to share with you. Remember that disappointments are inevitable. Don't judge the future by the past. See your interactions as opportunities, not burdens, and work for the Lord, not just for people. It is hard to deal with the disappointment of making an investment in people and not seeing it pay off. But God wants us to not grow weary in doing good. I will say from my own experience, this is a hard thing to work through. It's not something that you can just say some words and just wish at it and it goes away. It takes some time, and it takes some healing, and we'll need the help of the Lord to do it. But we continue to serve, and we throw our burden on the Lord. Let's get over the compassion fatigue that we have and continue to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Thank you for your attention this morning. We'll be dismissed for our classes.